Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and today I'm super excited to be sitting down talking to integrative functional dietitian Allie Miller. She is the author of Naturally Nourished, The Anti-Anxiety Diet, and the newest book, Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook. Her food is medicine philosophy is supported by up-to-date scientific research for a functional approach to healing the body. Allie is a renowned expert in the ketogenic diet with over a decade of clinical results using a unique whole foods approach tailored to support thyroid, adrenal, and hormone balance. Yay. <laughs> Allie's message has influenced millions through media with television segments, features in Mind Body Green, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Women's Health, and Prevention Magazine. Her Also, her award-winning podcast, Naturally Nourished, and within the medical community. Allie's expertise can be accessed through her website, www.alliemillerrd.com, and she has a blog, a podcast, like I mentioned, Naturally Nourished, uh, virtual learning, and she also has a supplement line called Naturally Nourished. So that was kind of a mouthful getting all of that out there, but I'm really excited to have you on, so thank you, Allie. Thank you. I'm excited for a fun conversation. Yes. So we haven't really gotten into the topic of anxiety in this podcast before. And being that you have the anti-anxiety diet cookbook and the anti-anxiety diet book, um, you are an expert at anxiety and diet. So how in the world, for people who have never heard this before, how is food mood? How does food change our mood or influence our mood? I'd love for you to get started there. Sure. So my approach to food as medicine is viewing it as a double-edged sword, if you will. You know, we have to eat, right? So we want to ensure that we are selecting foods that have an abundance of nutrient density, antioxidants, um, particular compounds that we find in animal sources like glycine, which can be very releasing for our nervous system. Uh, and then removing those pro-inflammatory foods that can disrupt the microbiome, drive distress to the gut lining and integrity, those foods that can imbalance hormone, and, and really the most elementary, I think, foundational approach to food as medicine starts with blood sugar regulation. Mm. Because if we're on the blood sugar roller coaster of highs and lows, we deal with a lot of abnormality in energy mood, brain function. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've all been hangry, hungry oh, and yeah. angry and irritable. Mm -hmm. And often that's this refractory response to a hypoglycemic dip. So when we can kind of transition the diet from a high glycemic processed, refined standard American diet, uh, and move into more of like from the roller coaster spikes and crashes to speed bumps of low glycemic, mm -hmm. we can start to harness and understand the influence on our metabolic connection to mood, um, as well as then start to hopefully have more of motivation and kind of a grounded energy source that we're able to then layer on some of these higher level functional tools. Yeah, yeah, that's, I love that you start with blood sugar. I think that's really interesting because, you know, 
panic attacks can also look like blood sugar dysregulation and, and, and symptoms there. Right. And I don't know if many people are aware of that. And I know you've probably said before anxiety, um, like many people talk about anxiety is a symptom that there's something else going on. So aside from blood sugar, what are some other imbalances that we could have in our body that's affecting what's going on in our brain? So my book takes a six R approach. And so I practice what's called functional integrative medicine. And I kind of call myself a detective of the body. Mm -hmm. Every individual that I meet with, I don't have these kind of standardized algorithms um, of treatment. I always look at them to determine, you know, what was their triggering event? What was the antecedent? What was the element that maybe um, threw their body off kilter? Um, and I've found in my now, I guess, 13, 14 years of clinical experience that regardless of what I'm working on with an individual, whether we're working with autoimmune disease and Crohn's or whether we're working with cardiometabolic conditions and lipid management, whether we're working on weight loss, whether we're working on um, blood pressure, mm -hmm. that the underlying Achilles heel to a lot of these conditions is anxiety. And if not anxiety, if that doesn't resonate to all listeners, an imbalance in our stress response. Ooh, so okay. I think that, that resonates a little bit wider scope. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's a little less attractive of, as a book title. Uh, but I always <laughs> right. say, like, regardless of if you've experienced anxiety, chances are you would benefit from harnessing the wild stallion of your brain. Mm -hmm. Chances are that you would benefit from reducing the rumination about what was and events that have occurred, as well as the anticipatory stress of what could be. Mm -hmm. And the reality is when the body is in this state of overdrive mode, the HPA mm -hmm. axis, which is our, our regulatory function of our entire body's set point, um, it stands for hypothalamic pituitary, which are in the brain, mm -hmm. and adrenals, HPA, um, that's what regulates us either in that sympathetic fight or flight or in that parasympathetic rest, digest, regulate. And the last thing I want to make as a point out there is the parasympathetic state is so much more than just rest and digest, like we learned about in you know middle school or whatnot. Mm -hmm. That is where our metabolism, our metabolism is optimized. I must made a hybrid word. Our metabolism <laughs> is optimized. That's where our sexual reproductive hormones are yeah. regulated. That's where our immune system is regulated. That's where neurogenesis mm -hmm. and our neurotransmitter processing is regulated. And so the body has to feel safe to do well. And if the body feels stressed or in survival mode, there's just going to be a different myriad of, of levels of, of dysfunction. Wow. That is a really powerful statement that the body has to feel safe. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and it's interesting in our bodies, it is really interesting how one little thing can throw off so many other things like our thoughts, right? Like our yeah. thoughts can send all of these messages. And like you mentioned, it's not just about, you know, our mental health. It's about our reproductive health. It's about our immune system and everybody's concerned about their immune system right now, you know, during, during these crazy times. So, um, it's important to have that, that HPA axis working optimally, right? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. So when I look at different areas that can be off kiltered, all of the six approaches that I take have kind of a chicken and egg relationship, if you will. Hmm. So I focus on removing inflammatory foods as one of the primary um, entry points. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is that if our body is dealing with inflammation, if you think of how our neurotransmitters work with signals to hit a receptor site, you want this to be rapid and you want to have an anti-inflammatory lubricated easy lock and key mechanism on a receptor site. Um, when we're dealing with inflammation and we see this with elevated CRP, which is one of the blood markers yep. of inflammation, um, mm -hmm. we can see that mental illness is about three to five times more likely because it's like the brain neurotransmitters are trying to fire through white noise. Um, and so we're not getting that clear cognitive delivery of our neurotransmitters. Mm. So reducing inflammation is a big piece of the puzzle. Then I look at, um, after that one, I look at resetting the microbiome because mm. we know that the three to five pounds of bacteria in our body outnumbers the cells that make us up 10 to one. Mm -hmm. 100 yeah. trillion cells living inside of our body. And if they are serving us and we're in a symbiotic state, we manufacture more feel-good neurotransmitters. So we make more serotonin, we make more GABA. When we are in a dysbiotic state, maybe we have uh, been exposed to a pathogen from foodborne illness or um, swimming in lakes or just mm -hmm. the environment, or maybe we have yeast overgrowth in the body like candida. When we're in a dysbiotic state, our gut actually puts out more epinephrine or adrenaline mm. surge. It, it kind of puts out the white flag or the alarm system to our central nervous system that something isn't right. Wow. And so often a root cause can merely be dysbiosis or bacteria imbalance. Mm. And what's chicken and egg about this is that stress alone sterilizes your good gut flora. Uh, yeah. So if you're coming at a state of anxiety, you're making more epinephrine and then you're sterilizing the good players. Well, that relationship just continues mm -hmm. to get more off kilter and perpetuates that, that imbalance in the body. And our gut microbiome is more active in the evening. So for people that notice that they start to get panic attacks and dips it's two parts. Serotonin is metabolized to make melatonin. And then also our gut bacteria gets more active in the evening. It's more nocturnal mm. per se. And so we see this circadian impact that can often be tied into the gut. Um, I'll give you the other four R's and then we can dig into any of them. But the, the third R is to repair the gut lining. So we're, we're looking at kind of managing once we've removed the inflammatory foods. Now we're working with managing the good gut bugs. We want to ensure we have good gut and integrity so that we can absorb the nutrients that we're eating. And we're dealing with that less back to stable step one of inflammation. Um, the fourth R is to restore micronutrient status. So I identify in my book, uh, mood boosting minerals, um, mm -hmm. the importance of brain balancing B vitamins. I identify amino acids that aid as building blocks to our neurotransmitters. And then the final two R's are to rebound the adrenal glands, helping the reader to understand if they're in that overdrive or underdrive mode of this HPA axis. And the final R that I do is to rebalance our neurotransmitters. And that's where I have some really cool tables and quizzes that help you to understand maybe it's excessive dopamine that's driving the hypervigilance, double checking everything, list making kind of paranoia response, 
or maybe it's due to a low level of serotonin, or maybe it's due to a high level of epinephrine. And so it's this complex symphony, and I try to give you guidance on what may be the driver of imbalance in your brain. Yes. Okay. So you said a thousand things there that I want to touch back on because it's so good. I'm like, yes, preach. All right. So let's talk about dopamine for a second Mm -hmm. because, you know, I've gotten into running my, you know, all the gene tests that you do and the little, you know, the, the snips and all of these things and looking through my own genes, I've, I've, noticed that maybe I potentially struggle with low dopamine, but also, you know, I was diagnosed 20 years ago with bipolar, which mania could be like an excess of dopamine. And so what, how do people's, how does dopamine get out of balance? Is, is that a thing? Like what would cause dopamine to go back and forth like that? Yeah. So dopamine's a big, important one and, and, and really created the birth of like bupropion or Wellbutrin. You know, there's, there's now a class of medications beyond the SSRIs that do impact dopamine levels as well in the brain, because we know that it has a huge influence on mood and anxiety, uh, as, as well as depression, of course. Uh, dopamine is actually considered what's called a catecholamine or a stress responding neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. And it is made predominantly by the adrenal glands. So, you know, back when I was talking HPA access, this, this kind of final stop of the adrenal glands are the, the end point when the body feels stressed. So if you're in that sympathetic fight or flight mode, your brain is focusing most of its energy on stimulating the adrenal gland. Mm. Um, and so the adrenal glands put out steroidal hormones like cortisol, mm. which is maybe the most kind of famous compound from the adrenals. Um, and a couple other like DHEA and aldosterone, but then the medulla of the adrenal gland makes dopamine, norepinephrine and epinephrine. Mm -hmm. And, um, dopamine is the first precursor. And then our norepinephrine and epinephrine are metabolized from that. So we can experience high or low dopamine based on how our adrenal gland is functioning Mm. and also based on our stress of our environment. And um, so if the gland is insufficient and it's been burned out over time, then Mm. we might be dealing with low dopamine. And that's where we're um, kind of flat affect. We're looking for a pick me up. We're more prone towards addictive tendencies Mm -hmm. because we think of it as like that bliss reward mechanism, right? Um, and then if we have high dopamine, this can drive, as I mentioned, hypervigilance, um, this kind of keyed up excitatory response. And yeah. that may pair with elevated epinephrine or adrenaline, which is oh. really intensive where the individual would feel almost um, like a shakiness or like a, I've had clients that have had high dopamine and epinephrine describe that they're pushing an old lawnmower and it's like the Richter, they may not have actual tremors that are visible. You typically will have tremors more with, um, low GABA. That's Mm -hmm. where we associate like Parkinson's disease and such. Uh But, um, the dopamine itself paired with epinephrine can really drive this almost out of body excitatory Mm. response, like discomfort in the skin. Um, we don't feel very grounded. We feel very overcharged. Real buzzy. I I always think of it as like brain being just kind of buzzy, (laughs) how I feel after a piece of cake. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and what, it's a good point. And so, so diet and environment impact dopamine. So mm-hmm. one of the biggest insults to dopamine today is blue light. And, wow. you know, as <laughs> what a beautiful mm-hmm. scenario we're all in, be that a lot of us are, you know, shelter in place mm-hmm. and working from home. And maybe we had more direct 
human engagement. I've actually been working virtually for, I don't know, now two years straight. Mm -hmm. So I'm used to screen time for eight <laughs> yeah. plus hours a day. And I don't know where I put my blue blockers. I took them off for the interview, but mm -hmm. I, I try to arm myself with the screen filters and whatnot because yep. the blue light does stimulate a part of the brain that drives dopamine in an abnormal elevation, which over time, anything that goes up needs to come down. Yeah. So we're either experiencing likely more of that keyed up response and that only perpetuates with the anxieties of unknown or a burnout, apathetic mm. low because we're, we're just seeking that, that high and that pick me up that we're not achieving. Wow. And, and the diet, the refined carbohydrates, especially when paired with fat, um, do maintain an elevation of dopamine. But what's important to call out with that is just like kind of drug addiction and that seeking of that high, the refined carbohydrates actually deplete many of the nutrients required to manufacture dopamine. Wow. So you're, you're hitting that receptor site, but you're, you're, you're pulling out from the foundation that helps you to regulate. So you're creating a higher mm. need to get that high, but coming at a more disadvantaged status. Uh, of a low, um, whereas opposed to protein-containing foods, um, I love one of my favorite dopamine boosts on the planet is a nori sheet, like seaweed, like what would oh, be wow. wrapped in, in um, mm -hmm. sushi, a nori sheet with any kind of protein that you like, so whether it's um, leftover rotisserie chicken or um, turkey, and you do avocado slices, um, that's mm -hmm. a really great source of tyrosine. Uh, uh -huh. paired with nature made folate and B vitamins that aid in that activation. And that's a great way to foundationally support dopamine manufacturing um, without getting just that ding on the receptor site and then depleting. Wow. Okay. That is so fascinating. <laughs> so we basically you know, we hear that word biohacking all the time, right? Like that's a big buzzword right now. Everybody's talking about it, but these are tools that we can use to biohack that the way that our body has been hijacked. <laughs> the natural response system has been hijacked in our modern world because yeah. I do think about, you know, even uh, my husband was a face-to-face -face worker and now everything is online for him and he is just dead at night, but then he's not sleeping in the middle of the night. And right. I'm, no, I'm hearing that from a lot of people. It's like they feel exhausted, but then they wake up from time to time in the middle of the night and they can't, their brain is just going, going, going. Yeah. So, and it's because of that hypervigilance, they're not completely disengaging. Um, they're not getting into that deep release restful state. The catecholamines are still kind of buzzing. And so it's like sleeping on eggshells, you know, it's like waiting for that, yeah. that thing to happen. And so sometimes then individuals will even wake up with like the, the gasping or that like standard 3am refractory cortisol or epinephrine surge. Yeah. What is it about 3am? What is the connection there? Because that's a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's just the timestamp of the amount of time that most individuals have slept. It's like getting into that second uh -huh. phase of sleep, you know, like that three yeah. to four hours into, um, for some people it's like five to six hours into, mm -hmm. but I think it's either your second or third phase of your sleep cycle and, and, um, kicking out. That's crazy. Okay. So you, another thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to go back into because now my brain is just going, um, you talked about the circadian rhythm and that your gut starts, I don't know if this wasn't your phrasing kind of starts working overtime at night. Is that basically what you're saying? Like how the microbiome starts working at night. So let's talk about probiotics. Um, yep. I know that you have mentioned that 
probiotics could be nature's Prozac. Yeah. So what, how would probiotics benefit us, especially maybe at the end of the day as we're sleeping? Like, what is your approach to probiotics and in, in overall health? Yeah. And what's really cool about that phrase that I use um, is that there actually have been randomized, controlled clinical studies comparing um, actually Prozac, well, the generic yeah. Prozac with a placebo, with a probiotic and saw overall more favorable outcomes with the use of the probiotic. So wow. I'm not making any recommendations of stopping yeah. any medications yeah, yeah. to any listeners, For but sure. I'm just saying that it's really powerful to see the influence of live ID strain guaranteed bacteria. Now there's just like anything, a bunch of products on the market. And so that's one of the dances of supplementation. Mm -hmm. um, but a good quality lactobacillus, especially if it's the NCNF line mm -hmm. um, or gene of the lactobacillus and the bifidobacterium um, have been shown very favorable influence on production of serotonin and GABA. And then they tend to mitigate that imbalanced bacteria that would drive that adrenaline surge response. Um, so there is that benefit of them feeding and producing about 90% of our serotonin is actually manufactured in the gut. And there's an interesting connection when we talk about neurotransmitters. So our serotonin and our GABA are what are called inhibitory Whereas like the dopamine, the norepinephrine, epinephrine are mm -hmm. excitatory. Glutamine is excitatory, um, but glutamine can be converted into GABA. Uh, so there's all wow. of these interchange, right, of, of our, our neuro, yeah. neurotransmitters. But um, on the probacteria side of things, when we work with the right strains and when our gut tolerates the good strains, they're going to likely manufacture foundationally again versus just hitting that receptor site. If you're comparing that conversation of dopamine to what we're talking about in the microbiome, um, you're kind of lifting up or elevating the field of potentiality as opposed to scooping out of a pot and working with a receptor modifier. Um, and so we are giving ourselves the actual compound juice. And we do see, some will say, oh, but that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. There's such a connection of our enteric nervous system or the brain in our gut to our central nervous system. And it's really a bilateral communication process. Um, and so we do know that A, there is some influence of GABA in a bioidentical form crossing the blood-brain barrier. And that B, via the peripheral nervous system, we get this signaling that modifies the feedback of, of the central nervous system, the brain and the spine compared to the gut. Wow. Okay. That's so good. I love it. So GABA, let's talk about GABA. So I know serotonin, people are pretty familiar with serotonin. That's, you know, the happy neurotransmitter that you mentioned is produced in the gut, but GABA might not be one that people are as familiar with. And yeah. that also is supposed to be produced in the gut as well in a healthy gut. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and interesting enough, if someone is dealing with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, they sometimes will both have a high level of histamine and GABA. Mm -hmm. Sometimes excessive GABA um, can be seen based in a state of excessive fermentation or dysbiosis. Uh -huh. So like anything, there's a sweet spot. Same mm -hmm. thing with serotonin. You know, we know there's selective serotonin mania and that excess mm -hmm. serotonin can drive chronic mm -hmm. diarrhea. Yep. Um, so when I'm looking at trying to understand the individual and whether they would potentially have low serotonin or low GABA as far as the, the inhibitory driver, 
Um, I see serotonin more associated with like myalgias, like muscle aches. Hmm. I see GABA associated more with um, our nervous system and more like tremors, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So an individual that gets shakier, an individual that has all of those classic signs of a stress response, like dryness in the mouth, um, the proverbial elephant on the chest, um, mm. thinking of like things like going on stage or first date, mm. <laughs> those yeah. types of physiological responses, a little bit of nerves in the gut. Um, but mostly it's going to be peripheral in the sense of like this palpable, um, anxiety and, and truly that's what I've seen a lot of with what's going on with the pandemic right now mm-hmm. is that, um, you know, I mean, you can just step outside and especially in, in March and April when we were all starting to navigate this zombie apocalypse, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could just step outside and you could just feel the palpable anxiety. I mean, yep. it is like this energy that just mm-hmm. doesn't feel good. Your body is right away keyed up to survival mode and and this yep. this kind of over engaging of distrust and not feeling grounded um, and GABA is one of those that can take that kind of steam train valve and, and aid with the release process as a very powerful inhibitory mediator and it's mostly experienced peripherally meaning that the body feels safe again um, mm-hmm. on a physiological level and and that it sense again can play chicken and egg because when the body's keyed up, then the brain says something's wrong, right? I mean, how many of us have had shortness of breath or palpitations and then the mind recognizes the physiological stress response and the mind gets keyed up about that. And I mean, that's usually a, a, Mm -hmm. a driving factor of a panic attack is that mind body connection that just drives that wild stallion off, off to the races. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I do feel like right now, my biggest concern being a mental health advocate is that everybody is like you said on high, high alert right now. And I'm, I talk to so many people who are, I'm having anxiety attacks. I'm having panic attacks. I'm just feeling like I don't feel safe anywhere, you know, and like, I'm afraid we are all going to be afraid of each other, you know, and just that whole, like you said, that feeling. And I hate it. Like I just, everything within me, I, I just, I hate it. And so what is a way that we can, you know, kind of counteract that, whether it's with, you know, supplementation or with food or how can we, cause we can't control everything that's going on outside of us, unfortunately. Right. Um, so how can we start from within and how can really, how can we dig in and become more self-aware in that way? Because I think just another thing is that so many people are like, oh, dang, I'm having physical symptoms. Right. Uh, I'm maybe I do need to be more self-aware, but I mean, there's just a lot going on. Um, and I'm talking in circles about it, but I'd love to know your thoughts. Sure. Sure. So, so a couple of things, one, I would say work with mantra and breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and so breath can be one of the most powerful ways to harness the HPA access. And so in my book, I use the four, seven, eight breath that Dr. Andrew Weil did a lot of research with, and that has been shown in clinical studies to within four cycles of use. And that's doing it four times, um, which can be yeah. in the timestamp of three minutes max, you know, um, can really take the body into that parasympathetic space. It actually sends signals down the vagus nerve, the largest nerve from our central nervous system, all the way down that runs kind of through the intestines, not through the intestines, but parallel to the intestines down to the colon. And um, what 478 looks like is inhaling through the nose for four, holding for seven, and whooshing with kind of a shh, oh, a shh for eight. 
And the dynamic of that is an exhale two to one ratio to your inhale. And when we're under a stressed state or we're feeling out of control or balance, what happens is we often do shallow, rapid inhalations and we don't allow that exhalation. And so we actually get bombarded in our lung capacity with overload and it's that lack of exhale that makes us feel like we can't inhale. Mm -hmm. So focusing on like pressing out from like an inner tube as if you let the air out, that whooshing is this deep compression in the lungs that really releases the abdomen and is giving that nervous system that signal that we're safe because survival mm -hmm. breath is again, shallow and rapid. So that's one way that you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also really like to employ mantra. Um, and so I, I think that mantra is a really fabulous tool and it works just like an arm weight. You know, it's, it's not going to come on guard if you're not using the muscle memory mm -hmm. to implant the seeds. So I like to use things like, um, for instance, maybe not in this environment. One of my favorite mantras is, um, this is not stress. This is passion manifest. And so today, Ooh, like, like when I had four clients and I have three um, interviews, you know, and, and it's a pretty <laughs> rock and roll day, and then I have to pick up my three and a half year old, mm -hmm. it's, it's easy for us in human nature to go into victim mentality or feeling like, what the hell? I have so much on my plate. This is impossible. Mm -hmm. What am I doing? Why did I commit mm -hmm. to this? Ba, 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 right. And you go into that shame guilt cycle yep. and you just don't allow the brain to go there and you just kind of commit to something neutral. And I always say neutral is be better than negativity. Um, mm -hmm. There's been research done on the nocebo effect. So mm -hmm. how negative thoughts can actually harm us. You know, we've maybe seen research on the benefits of a placebo, how when you believe in something, you get some positive outcomes. But negative thoughts can actually drive so much distress of that fight or flight response and, and even have been shown to exhibit physiological dynamic symptoms. There was a study done where they told participants that they were getting an IV of chemotherapy and it was just a saline drip. And um, it was like 70%, 60 to 70% of the individuals retched and vomited, which mm -hmm. I guess I could make sense of that because that's a pretty quick connection of a perceived impact on the body. But 40% of them lost their hair. How wow. do you will yourself to lose hair? I mean, that buy-in of that <laughs> wow. belief created a physiological process. So imagine how much if you can plant neutral seeds instead of negative seeds mm. and take out the shoulds and take out the can'ts and take out the mm. nots and take out the, I have no control to just, I am. Mm. Um, just getting into a neutral space can, can feel empowering for an individual. And, that, and that's just breath mm. and, um, you know, breath and mindfulness, then there's diet and supplement interventions too, of course, that can be very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I like that planting neutral seeds. I really yeah. like that. I think that's really important. And I think that that goes into, that's a perfect segue into diet. I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, your, your ketogenic approach and yeah. um, real food. And I know that there's, you know, clean keto, dirty keto, everybody yeah. wants to do keto right now, but there's a lot about it that is based on actual science. This yeah. isn't just right. Like, I mean, this isn't just some fad, like, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. So let's yeah. break down what, why you believe so strongly in, in this approach to sure. mental, physical well-being. 
So uh, I have been using a ketogenic diet clinically for over a decade, and I initially started using it in a you know weight loss approach as an alternate to bariatric surgery. So I was working with wow. patients that had significant weight loss goals, and um, you know we were using this very low carbohydrate diet to aid in maintaining their lean body mass while metabolizing um, body fat loss, and also in maintaining that satiety or that um, discipline, which tends to be easier in an individual that is doing a ketogenic diet as opposed to calorie restriction um, because of the satiety factor. And about three years into, you know, just looking at it with weight loss, I, I started to see such cool things happen. Like, you know, individuals, of course, getting off their diabetic meds, individuals getting off their blood pressure meds, and those happen with weight loss. So I wasn't that, you know, alarmed. I was like, okay, that's to be assumed. Um, but then I started seeing keto miracle babies. And then I started seeing individuals that were bipolar, that were thinking clearly and felt like themselves again. Then I started seeing individuals with inflammatory bowel disease, not needing mm -hmm. their Imuron and their Humira and going into complete remission with autoimmune conditions. And so I started to think, you know, there's gotta be something else beyond just the idea of them losing weight, there's mm -hmm. got to be more metabolic activity and some neurological impact. And when we look at the history of the ketogenic diet, well, even backstepping the history in the medical world, we as humans are hybrids. We have yeah. survived in this world because we have the ability to produce ketones, point blank. Mm -hmm. If you do not have access to food after 72 hours, your body is making ketones. <laughs> if you do not have access to carbohydrates after 72 hours and you're eating protein and fats, your body is making ketones. And for some individuals, even just fasting 16 or 18 hours, their body starts to produce ketones. So ketones are a fuel source as an alternate to glucose when we are not consuming high amounts of carbohydrates and when we are not consuming foods frequently. Babies in utero, 40% use ketones as their fuel source. So wow. this isn't a fad diet. This is something that the human body is right. familiar with and has required for survival. Yeah. Now, I would say what's radical is breaking the body with the standard American diet mm -hmm. and overburdening it with carbohydrates. Yep. Um, I think that's radical, but you know, I digress. So, so when we look in research from the 40s is when we started to bring the ketogenic diet into the medical mainstream, and it was for use of epilepsy. And if you think of the mechanism of grand mal seizures, um, the ketone bodies actually cross the blood-brain barrier. They are GABAergenic, so they upregulate GABA expression, taking mm. out that dynamic tremor effect of the nervous yep. system, aiding as that inhibitory, and ketones downregulate our excitatory impulses in our nervous system. So similar mechanisms of things that would impact seizure as well as things like panic attack. Um, and so when, and then they reduce oxidative stress in the brain. They're a cleaner fuel to burn. So there's less inflammation. We retain more antioxidant status. Um, and so I, I started to look at how this plays a role with the HPA axis and sexual hormones. So there's that neurotransmitter mm -hmm. neurological. We also know that ketones upregulate leptin and leptin is a primary hormone, not just of satiety. We're told leptin is the satiation and ghrelin is the hunger hormone, but leptin hits that hypothalamus, the H of the hypothalamus. And when we optimize our leptin levels, most people who are insulin resistant are leptin resistant. So as yeah. you bring down your insulin by bringing down your carbohydrates, which demand insulin response, 
you start to get more optimized leptin expression. And that tells the body it's safe. It tells the body it's safe. It helps us to go parasympathetic. And it helps the P, the pituitary of the brain, to put out more reproductive hormone as opposed to just stimulating chronically those adrenals. Wow. And that's where we see the FSH and LH slingshot of these keto babies. Um, we also wow. see oxytocin made by the pituitary, which is another bliss you know, mm -hmm. um, compound in the brain. So there's a lot of mood stabilizing benefits. Um, and so I created the anti-anxiety diet right away in that first chapter that talks about removing mm -hmm. inflammation one of the five foods I demonize is refined sugar. Mm -hmm. And in that world, I right away start to introduce, okay, get off that blood sugar roller coaster, right? Go mm -hmm. low glycemic. But now, now that you're not getting the highs and lows of the mood imbalance, now what would happen if you started to have this high octane brain fuel to take it to the next level? And what right. does that look like for each individual? Wow. Okay. That's so good because, you know, it's funny. I, one of the reasons I got into just looking into the ketogenic diet is because I read something about how beneficial it is for mania symptoms and hypomania. Mm -hmm. And with what you're saying and all the balancing out with the GABA and the, you know, I'm yeah. like, oh, and oxidative stress, which yep. so a lot of us, we don't produce antioxidants internally right. the way that we're supposed that to. endogenous production. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, looking back at my health history, looking at, at people I know, there's a lot going on that predispose us to being out of balance. And so with yeah. this, this is a way to hack that system again and, and work through that. I love it. And I, I, you know, it's funny with times of stress, we tend to want our comfort foods and want to pick up, you know, whatever it is that we like, but, um, man, it, my mood benefits so much more when I am eating a whole food keto approach. So I love that you're mentioning that. Yeah. And I think where, as opposed to where it can go wrong, um, you had asked that, and I think that's definitely important to address. So, um, my anti-anxiety diet approach is dairy free. A lot mm. of times when people go keto, mm. they load on the case. All the cream cheese. <laughs> uh -huh. And casein is a known offender to brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. So casein mm -hmm. crosses the blood brain barrier. Yep. Uh, it, and it can interfere with our opioid receptors. Mm -hmm. So for an individual that is prone towards that, um, kind of addictive tendency or irritability, short fuse mania that mm -hmm. can then mitigate the effects of the ketosis because of yep. the casein overdrive. Um, so that's a big area to watch out for. And casein is mm -hmm. also a lectin. So it destroys the gut lining. So yeah. that's an area to watch out mm -hmm. for. And and the other thing is, you know, really focusing on loading on the fat as opposed to really focusing more on carbohydrate management and then mm. eating in balance. So I'm a big proponent of what I call metabolic flexibility, mm -hmm. which is basically that there isn't this one size fits all ketogenic approach of this pie chart of you need to eat 75% of your calories in fat. Um, especially if you're looking for body fat loss, that just is yeah. not logical. That makes sense maybe in a neurological intensive case where, you know, we're talking about an individual that has multiple seizures a day, mm -hmm. then we really are force feeding fat in that individual because we need to have them at a therapeutic level of ketone production. Yeah. But for most people, when we're looking for mood management, when we're looking for whole body health, we want to find a sweet spot where we're still able to get variety of phytocompounds, antioxidants, 
variety of flavor profiles mm -hmm. and you know um, that full spectrum of color in the diet. And for some individuals, they may be able to eat third cup of roasted sweet potato with sauteed onion. You know, it doesn't mean that mm -hmm. there's yes or no food list. And that's unique to my right. approach as well. Um, when we get myopic with it in tunnel vision and we say, oh, can't have carrot because that's not keto or can't <laughs> have, you know, I, I mean, I have a carrot, I don't know what it's called, carrot zinger soup, I think I called it. It's mm -hmm. like a ginger bone broth, coconut milk, delicious soup. And it uses a cup of roasted carrots in the entire soup, not in the single portion. Yeah. Um, and it has orange zest in it. And it's like this delightful creamsicle um, flavor mm. profile. And it's, it's keto because do you still produce ketones when you have it? Probably, unless you're having five cups of it. So there's always mm -hmm. this threshold. And mm -hmm. I think that that's where the evolution of making this a sustainable diet changes, um, you know, taking off that you have to eat a stick of butter and uh, right. bacon, which I love both of those foods, to be fair. But, you know, that that's not what keto has to continue to look like. It can, it can be re-tapping into the body's hybrid mm -hmm. innate ability and, and getting the magic of those ketones without over-restricting. Yeah, no, that's so important. I like that you talk about the, you know, you stay away from the yes and no, and it's individualized. That's so important. Um, as we're talking about the what not to do with keto, let's talk about why you hate non-caloric sweeteners. Yeah. Because I haven't gotten into that on the podcast and I'm passionate about this as well. So let's go. Let's talk about yeah. those. So um, the concern with non-caloric sweeteners is um, many of them are, are sugar alcohols, which are not metabolized by the body. So they're mm -hmm. absorbed in the small intestines and come out in the urine in the same structural form. That creates um, often a lot of GI distress. Mm -hmm. So it can cause bloating, loose stool, electrolyte imbalance. Some of the other non-caloric sweeteners are sterilizing, including stevia. So stevia is not a sugar alcohol. Um, there's some hybrid products that use a sugar alcohol and stevia or whatnot, but stevia itself is what's called bacteriostatic meaning that it actually can reduce the beneficial bacteria in our gut. Hmm. Um, so that's not a good idea as well. It's good to know. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the chemical non-caloric sweeteners, I, I mean, as far as if we're talking about like sucralose and aspartame, there's been hmm. a lot of neurological neurotoxicity concerns or tumorigenic activity, or we're seeing leukemia in mice hmm. with, with hmm. the um, saccharin, for instance. So all of those chemical ones have their own serious concerns on the neurological level. Um, but just across the board, aside from GI stress, aside from sterility, which those two do impact our neurotransmitters, obviously, um, just the connection of this kind of Pavlov's dog psychosomatic addictive tendency. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to lower your carbohydrate intake in your diet, I really want you to channel savory. Um, I really want you to have, you know, a, a raw almond and appreciate its natural sweetness. Yeah. Um, if you are continuing to replace your prior, you know, donut, pastry, muffin, you name it, with these non-caloric sweeteners, you're maintaining that hyper palatability or this unnatural flavor profile. And you're continuing to tell the brain and the body and behavior that safe is, that sweet, excuse me, is safe and that it's desirable. Mm -hmm. So every time you're at a baby shower, every time you're at a wedding, every time you're at Starbucks or whatever, you're white knuckling and craving those foods. And you're like, oh, well, I don't know if I want to break keto, but that looks really good. Well, when you remove those non-caloric sweeteners from your diet, you have a more robust microbiome. You're benefiting from better connection, of course, on your neurotransmitter level, 
but you also are truly breaking up with sugar. It's not mm. like a replacement boyfriend right. Right. <laughs> from a bad breakup. You're actually redefining your relationship with food and what sweet is and what desired flavor profile is. And this is really important in our households with children as well, mm. because you know we want them to be able to tolerate bitter flavors like leafy greens. We want them to be open to more of these savory flavor profiles. And so if we are making muffins and things, that single banana that you mash into your 12 muffin recipe, in my perspective and my approach is yes, likely keto because you're getting of 30 grams of carb banana divided by 12, you know, you're getting 2.5 grams <laughs> of carbs. Um, but that should also be enough sweetness to balance out the flavor profile mm -hmm. of your almond flour, your eggs, your vanilla extract, your coconut oil, and whatever else is in there. Um, and so if we added stevia and erythritol or any of those baked non-caloric sweeteners, it may still be keto on a macros level, but that, that palate feedback, you're still maintaining that addictive tendency. Yeah. Which goes back to what you're saying earlier, that it's not about the, the pie chart, you know, and having right. these certain, it's really more about the quality. Um, yes. And I think that that's so important. And I think, and also I know that you talk a lot about, you know, things you feed your daughter, what you eat, your daughter eats. And this isn't like some, and, and that's what a lot of people miss too. In these conversations, it's like, if we're eating for our health, our kids, it's, it's the same, it's the same thing for them too. And I think right. that's important. So, um, yeah. So how can people learn more about you, find your books, maybe join your programs, um, and check in with, with what you're doing? Yeah. So everything is at AllieMillerRD.com in the world of my naturally nourished supplement line. So mm -hmm. I have uh, probiotics in there. Something I would suggest mm -hmm. checking out for listeners yeah. that are interested in their microbiome is I have a probiotic challenge Nice. Um, that uses my restore baseline probiotic and you can get that protocol at AllieMillerRD.com. So that'll give you a litmus of whether you are in a sterilized dysbiosis or symbiotic state. And, you know, I would say for anyone dealing with mental health issues, that's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, 30 something bucks. It's a very, you know, moderate investment to determine where your microbiome is at mm -hmm. and then figure out if you may need to do some form of a gut cleanse to push the reset button or if you need a higher dose probiotic, or if you're fine with just incorporating cultured foods in the diet. Um, so that's a really great resource I would highlight for listeners. Uh, over there, I have my books and my programs. So I do have a 12-week food as medicine ketosis program that I run that has all of this kind of deep dive information. And each week we have food as medicine goals. So we might talk about leaky gut and inflammatory foods, and then we're going to be recommending bone broth, collagen, gelatin, mm -hmm. and how to get in the bone broth and make it taste enjoyable versus hot mm -hmm. meat juice, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's an awesome program resource. We have another program called Adrenal Rehab. So if that kind of HPA access, burnout mm. stuff, mantra, mm. blue light, all of that stuff is in that program over there. And I also have a 10-day detox. And then my supplement line has 35 different formulas that are kind of across the board, a lot of detail and research on each product. So it's a fun awesome. kind of dive in. And then I have another website, naturallynourishedrd.com. And that is where my podcast resides and my blog and then my clinic for when I'm taking on one-on-one -on -one, um, patients. Awesome. Yeah. And I love your podcast. You go into lots of detail for <laughs> those of us who are nerdy like that. I love yep. it. <laughs> yeah, so definitely yeah. recommend checking that out. Um, and just one last little question, if you could, you know, this is called sparking wholeness. So if you could give one piece of advice to spark someone towards wholeness, what would it be? Where would, where would you start? 
Oh my goodness. If I was to give one piece of advice to spark wholeness, I would say it would be to reconnect with your own inner voice. And mm-hmm. sometimes that sounds really scary to do. <laughs> but I think especially at this time, there's really strong narratives. There's really polarizing opinions. And we, we really need to sit with it um, and, and really tap back into our own intuition um, as, as mothers, as fathers, as friends, family, whatnot, we need to really sit with what feels right. And um, that allows us then to understand how our body responds to foods favorably or unfavorably um, and, and kind of can silence the noise of influencers doing a program, a plan, what feels best with me. Um, and so what I like to have my clients do is just like a weekly brain dump. And then at the end of each weekly brain dump, and it could be starting with two sentences. This week, I had some GI stress, I slept poorly, and I was getting really frustrated at my four-year-old or whatever. And then um, I, I, I always have them state one resolution or goal, and then one mantra. So the mantra could be as simple as, um, I release what I cannot control, um, if we're finding ourselves very irritable and bitey. And the resolution might be that I'm going to get outside for 30 minutes a day because I know that grounding and getting exposure of sunshine is going to kind of refresh my tank. Um, And so I I think that reconnecting within our own voice and within our own self um, is so important now. And being autonomous and kind of serving as your own practitioner, allowing functional medicine practitioners, doctors, physicians to be a guide but understanding that you know your body the most of anyone. And I'm sure a lot of listeners can resonate with that because they've been told they're not broken or they are broken or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And and you know your body the best of anyone and you just have to maintain and be your own best advocate. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so good. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Preach. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on and everyone go follow her, check out her stuff, her book, her recipes for sure. Um, That carrot soup sounds amazing. (laughs) And um, yeah, thanks again for being on Allie. It's my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.